Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. Today's lecture I titled, The Opportunities to Live Are Within Concealment. And the topic overall that I was looking for was something that would complement with, with what Rabbi Wolby teaches us, the mitzvot, perkeovos, something that would help create more appreciation for that subject. I want to start off by saying that I'd like to dedicate this tour studying the merit of the people in New York that were attacked and about all the attacks that have occurred recently, especially up in the Northeast. You know, I was thinking uh, on the way down here, when this was happening to us in the times of the first temple and the second temple, the Jews were sinning. They pushed God's presence away. And the first time it allowed the Assyrian Empire to come in and the Babylonians. But it wasn't that every Jew. There was many Jews that were fulfilling the Torah acting like Zadiks, but they were all punished. They all had to watch the Syrian empire come in and slaughter their families. The reason behind that is, is because we're all bound together and we're all responsible for one another. And I think that when things like this happen, one of the things that we should be collectively doing and individually doing is, is thinking about what we can be doing better, our own introspection, our own teshuva, because in, in some small way, we are all responsible for one another and all contribute to whatever's pushing the divine presence away f- from our protection. So I want to dedicate this to our study to, to all those people that have lost their lives and those that are, are healing. May they have a quick recovery. I want to begin by talking about something my, that happened when I was growing up. When I was growing up, one of the ways I would certainly get in trouble is if my dad asked me to do something. And I said, why? And the reason he would explain it to me is he would say, do you not think I'm wiser than you? You're seven or you're eight. Do you not think I love you? That I have your best interest at heart? Because whenever I say, I need you to do this, and you say, but why? That's what you're telling me. You know, this is a very similar relationship that we have with God. The difference is, is that we can see our parents, but we can't see God. One of the things... What I want to be talking about is this whole idea of concealment and re- revelation from God. And one of the things I, I, the questions I posed in the email that I want to address is, why doesn't God do a Mount Sinai type national revelation every generation? I've had a lot of people ask me that. If that was true, why doesn't he do that just every generation? Then we would all, we would know for certain that that was true. And it's a good question. And that's one I want to discuss with you. So I'm going to be discussing some Kabbalistic type concepts. So I want to do my Kabbalah warning to start off and why I think it's important, but in the proper way. Like I have a diet that I keep for my nutrition. I know how many proteins, carbs, fats I want to sort of allocate to accomplish my physical goals. With Torah study, I also have a diet. There's, you know, the written Torah, Parsha, Talmud, Mishnah, Midrash, and the Kabbalah is sort of like the gravy or the broth in the stew that sort of binds it all together. And I think in the proper allocation, it's good. 
But if it becomes the main meal, it's not a good thing. So first, what is Kabbalah? Well, the, the written Torah, the Torah itself, is the blueprint for creation. And creation just does not involve this world. There's other worlds as well, like where the angels live. And so sources like the Zohar use the written Torah in the, to break apart and explain what is happening with the spiritual counterpart. Like our bodies have a spiritual counterpart. This, these tables do. Everything in this world has a spiritual counterpart. And with the, the text like I know from the Zohar, which I study, explains what is happening in the spiritual realm. So like this one book I have, which is about five inches thick and covers, and it's part of a 33-set collection because this one book covers like three parshas. They'll take a line, and then they'll send pages and pages dissecting it because they're taking what's happening, how the written tours explain what's happening in this world through the narrative, and they explain the equivalent to what's happening in the other realms. From God's perspective, what is more important to them? Whether we know how to do what we need to do in this world or knowing why he asks us to do certain things. And that's why a lot of times we get, we get caught up in, I see a lot of people just wanting to study Kabbalah and they're just looking and trying to understand what's happening in other worlds. God doesn't care about that. This is the world of action. And we have a very finite time to accomplish our mission. So to spend a lot, all of our time studying things like Kabbalah is, is not helping God with what our task is. And I'll, I'm going to delve into this a lot more. The other thing that the reason Kabbalah as its own source of study becomes, there's a lot of people that like that idea. Well, whoever the charlatan was that came up with his version of Kabbalah as a standalone religion and marketed it to Hollywood, the reason people like Madonna like that is because everyone yearns to be close to God. But with just the study of Kabbalah, there's no laws and rules on how to behave. It can be on your terms. She doesn't have to dress modestly. She can... She can, uh, use her sexuality to sell records. There's no, she can, she can do things on her terms. With Tor, we know it's all about making Hashem's will our will. And some people don't like that idea. So this gives them sort of the freedom to do that. The other thing is I, I was, I had lunch with someone a couple of years ago and we were talking. He was a Jewish guy and he, and he started just making fun of Orthodox Jews for having their a roof for not caring outside of that boundary they create in their community. Just totally like it's so ridiculous and insane. And I said, well, there's a reason why they do that. It says so in the Torah. And he said, well, we all know the Torah is not true. We, there's no evidence to support any of that stuff ever happened. And I made the, the vital mistake, which I don't make anymore. And I said, well, there are logical proofs built into the text that God created so that we wouldn't have, that we would have evidence for this, not to rely on someone else's testimony to that. And his response was just anger. I mean, he like literally jumped across the table at me in anger and said, that is ridiculous. How could you say such a thing? So I backed off. Okay. But then later on in the conversation, he goes on to tell me that he's studies Kabbalah and teaches Kabbalah with a book study. And I'm thinking, okay, there's no evidence for written Torah, what's your source for what's for this, someone's description of what's happening in the heavenly realm? You know, people make the argument that, well, Mount Sinai, the national revelation, that was some psychedelic trip everyone went on. Well, 
I would say there's a much better argument that when Shimon Bar Yarkai was in the cave of 13 years, getting prophecy from Elijah and, and writing all this Kabbalistic text, I think there's a much better argument that it wasn't a carob tree he was eating from, but shrooms, and that he was having some massive psychedelic exper- you know, experience. So, it, you know, you can see, like, why would someone say there's no evidence in this text that describes this world, what we're supposed to do and what happened throughout history, but this text, yeah, there's credence to this. And again, it's all back to, I want to do things on my terms. I want to draw close to God, but I don't want to be told what to do. That's the, uh, the error there. But I will say that in this era of deep concealment from God, that knowing the why is necessary. And for me, what it does is it creates the, the gravity, the importance of doing what we need to do and studying the Torah and fulfilling the mitzvot. It makes me not want to waste time. It makes me sort of understand exactly why this is so important and what a vital role we play in creation. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the construct of the world from a Kabbalistic sense, and then we're going to get in and we're going to address the question at hand, which is why God does not do a national revelation in every generation. So one of the benefits of God allowing us to discover technology is it has allowed us to understand concepts that were too difficult for us to understand before. So one of the ways is that we know that the building block of software is a binary code, zeros and ones. The zeros represent no electrical impulse, and the ones represent an electrical impulse. And from that, when you turn on your computer and you see the videos and the text and the images and the ability to talk to someone in Skype or use FaceTime on your phones, all that is built off that basic binary code, which is, which is pretty incredible that all that takes place in that computer world is from that alone. And that is very similar to how God constructed the world. The binary code for creation is God's revelation of himself, God's concealment of himself, and the same type binary sequences that everything is built on. And this is how this, he created this world through different levels of concealment of himself. So we have these different worlds. So the first level concealment is in this world, Atzilu, which means nothingness. And then he uh, concealed himself even more. And that's the world of Berea. And then he concealed himself more, and that is the world of Yetzira. And then he concealed himself more, and that is the world of Asiya, which is where we live, which is corresponds with the world of action. So sort of you can get that image of just more concealment, more concealment, more concealment. So the angels have no free will. Because they're in a world where he has concealed himself so that they could exist, but there's enough revelation of himself that they, they can't deny his existence. So free will can't exist in, a, in an environment where all your sensory perception is tied into the one who created you and sustains you. You may remember reading, uh, or learning during Perkeo Vote, Rabbi, we'll be talking about when the four sages entered the Pardis, the orchard, Rabbi Akiva, Ben Azai, Ben Zoma, and Aker. It talks about how they, they went into this meditative state and, and, and elevate themselves to these other worlds. And it did not go well. Only once, away, so. Only once Ben Azai gazed and died. Ben Zoma gazed and lost his sanity and, and Aker became a heretic. Only Rabbi Akiva survived. 
And what this is describing, this is getting back to the construct. And I've talked in the past about we have a neshama, which is connected to God. I'm going to break it down in a little more detail. Our neshama, the only two people in the, in the history of the universe who have had their neshama drawn down their body are Adam and Moses. For the rest of us, the neshama is above us. What connects that is ruach, with spirit. So when, when God blew the soul into Adam, what it was was that area of his soul that connected the neshama, the part of the soul that animates every living being, every animal in the world, to his neshama connected that. So when God created this world, by creating this world where there was a lot of concealment, he wanted to create a kingdom, one where the subjects chose him to come in. That's why he needed us, because what is connecting him really to this world is us. Because here we are in a physical body, and we have a soul that attaches, like links in a chain, all the way up to our neshama, even further than that, to to God. And we're sort of this, this link between the spiritual realm and the physical realm. And so what these rabbis were able to do, which is a Kabbalistic technique, is then elevate their consciousness from this world to the other levels of their soul, which goes into other worlds. So basically it goes from the, the highest level at Zilut, which is nothingness, Berea, which is where thought originates, Yitzira, which is where speech comes from, and then Asiya, which is this world, action. This is from a Rabbi uh, Ari Kaplan wrote this in his book, Inner Space. And there's, there's going to be a reason why I'm getting this. Cause I, I never, I don't study anything unless there's a practical application to it. So I'm going to get to how this has a practical application. But, uh, but here's, here's another important point. Why Rabbi Akiva was the only one to survive. Rabbi Akiva, who was not only a master in the Kabbalah, he knew all of Torah. Therefore, to successfully go into the Pardes experience, one cannot merely be involved in Kabbalah. One really has to know all of Torah. So that, that's a key important point I wanted to make. The next thing is, is that our, our thoughts all reside in the world of Berea. Our thoughts are all in the spiritual realm. And so therefore the touch point of the heavenly realm in this realm is our speech. Because we take the thoughts, we use our body, the air, we run up our throats, you know, our vocal cords through our mouth, through this fleshy body and teeth, and we create sounds. And so through our speech, we are either drawing the heavenly realm into this world or doing just the opposite based off the type of speech we use. You all have probably heard of the organization Chabad, which is an acronym for Chakma, Bina, and Dot. I want to explain that just a little bit. Chakma means wisdom which is like undifferentiated knowledge, sort of that inspiration, that idea that comes to us. Like I know since I'm putting my house in the market next week, I'm going to be eventually building a new home. So I, I sort of know, I have an idea, I need to build a home. But it's not yet Bina for me. It's not yet understanding. I haven't begun to really develop each room size you know, how many floors do I want? One story or two story? I haven't really begun to develop that yet. So Bina is, is that understanding. It's the source of ability to analyze the knowledge and break it down into its component parts. Everything in the spiritual realm has a male and female aspect. Well, here, Hakma, uh, or wisdom, is male. And Bina is female. Because the Hakma, the wisdom, is the seed, and Bina is the womb. 
And from the unification of those is what we call dot, our knowledge. And that is the, the level of our intellect that allows us to articulate words. It's why I wanted to teach. I, Rabbi Wolby encouraged me to teach for so long, and I said I needed to do this because this is how we get our dot, our knowledge. In the Shema, it says, let these matters I command today be upon your heart. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on. Because obviously there's more he wants us to do than just to be contemplating them with our heart. Teach them thoroughly to your children and speak of them. Not think of them. Speak of them while you sit in your home, while you walk on the way, when you tire, and when you arise. The reason is, is because when I have, when I learn from Rabbi Wolby, when we're sitting in here in class and I get Bina, I get an understanding. It doesn't become mine. I don't own it until I go home and I explain what I learned to Shauna, my wife. And so that's why it's so it's important when you learn something to go out and teach it to someone else. And if you think about it this way, when we get understanding, when we learn Torah, and then we get our knowledge by communicating to someone else, and now they have understanding, and then we encourage them to go teach it to someone else, what is that doing? It's creating the cycle of bringing this heavenly realm into this realm. So I would say, too, that the if the primary binary code for creation is concealment and revelation, then the programming code is the Hebrew alphabet. Because the Torah says that Torah is a blueprint for creation, that God created the world with Torah, that he created the world with ten emanations that brought the world into existence. But I was thinking about a book I read back 15, 20 years ago. And it was a book by Brian Greene called The Elegant Universe. And it was about string theory. And so what string theory is, and this theory may have evolved considerably since 1998, but the idea here is that at the very minute building blocks of all creation, past molecules, atoms, you know, proton, neutrons, and each of their subsequent parts, at the, at the, at the, at the heart of all of that, is vibrations. So different levels of vibrations create different subatomic particles that create atoms, that create the table, this bag, this microphone, my iPad, me, the air between us. So really the only thing, the difference between the building blocks of everything in this room, all of us, is different levels of vibrational frequencies. When I read that, I thought someone should tell the physicists that they are on the right track because this is what the Kabbalists have been saying for over 2,000 years is that everything was built on the Hebrew language. And I used to, when I heard that, I thought it was a, a child type idea that during the Big Bang, there was a, a bet and an Aleph coming out of the cosmos. No, it's talking about those sounds, those vibrations. And God, and we're referred to as the speaking being, meaning that's what makes us unique, is that we can speak, and it goes to the gravity of our power of speech. A couple other concepts. This is from the uh, commentary on the Sefer Yitzira, uh, the commentaries by Rabbi Ari Koppelin as well. And he wrote the following, each of the six cycles of creation brought something new into the world. The fifth cycle was one that brought forth life, and this took place around two and a half billion years ago. Around 974 generations before Adam, 
or some 25,000 years ago, man developed all the physical and mental capabilities that we possess today. This man had evolved from the dust of the earth, Genesis 2-7. If you remember when you read Torah, it mentions the creation of man twice, and this is why. But he still lacked the divine soul that made him a spiritual being. God then created Adam, the first true human being with a soul, and he blew in his nostrils of soul of life. So again, where the written Torah keeps things very terse, and we just see the creation of man twice, and we think it's the same story. Of course, it's not by accident. What's really happening here is that he created man without a soul. 25,000 later, years later, he created man with a soul. This, this tells us a lot about our construct. Someone standing upright and with a smarter intellect is not really man. You know, when you think about Hitler, the Nazis, all the really evil people, the maniac that came in with the machete, what they have done is allow themselves to evolve back to just residing with that nephish soul level like all animals have. They have allowed themselves to fall back into being uh, an animal that stands upright with a greater intellect. But they're, they have, instead of choosing to be man, which man has, is connected to, to God. That means that all our tasks collectively and individually are to bring and connect the heavenly realm to this realm. And God can't do this without us. This really shows how he needs us to do this. And the other thing about this world, a lot of things, because we're in deep exile, especially in the uh, exile here of Edom and and uh, in Rome and Christianity and the Western civilization, we take a lot of their concepts mistakenly. And one is that that this world is just so we can l- move on and have some great heavenly experience. And that's not the case. You know, in the second prayer in the Shemno Esrei, the Mita, is a prayer to God for his faithfulness to resurrect the dead. Meaning, this world is not something for some temporary reason. He wants this world. It's intimate. What he's doing is just giving us an opportunity to be co-creators in it. And then over time, those who take on the task of being co-creators will be resurrected in this world. So again, the goal is not to go live in with have angels sitting on a cloud in the heavenly realm. It's we're building this world. This is what he wants. And that's an important concept and brings some gravity and weight to what it is that we're trying to do here. So here's an analogy I'll use. Assume you have a, a man who's very successful, is a very successful business enterprise. And he has a son who he loves very much. And he decides to give his son some cushy job, pay him a nice salary, uh, allow him to receive the benefits, but he just allows the son to sort of sit in the corner office, doesn't really care what he does, he can surf the internet, take naps. So that's one that's what one businessman does. He gives his son a job, and but doesn't really give him any responsibility. He just wants to take care of him. The other man, he has a successful business, but he really loves his son. So what does he do for him? He grooms him to be a partner, to actually, because he says, I, I really value you. I want to train you. I want to make sure you get a good education. I want to groom you, take over the business. I want you contributing to it. Who is giving the greater gift? The, the first man who just gives him some cushy job. I'm basically telling him, I don't really value you versus the one that is really grooming the son to be a partner with him. The second one feels, knows that his dad believes in him. And that also means that who's going to be tougher? The first dad? Not really. I don't really care what the kid does. 
I just want him to collect his paycheck. You know, these, he can pay his mortgage. The second dad is going to want to make sure he's going to be tougher on him. He's going to put, make sure that he takes on this job. And the son is also going to know he's going to want to please his dad. He's going to want to rise to the occasion. And the father in the second scenario is not going to let the son, you know, he's going to say, look, you know, at the holiday party, you can't be the drunk imbecile, you know, dancing on the table with a lampshade on your head. You are representing me and you have to have a level of decorum. You have to be very competent at what you're doing because I'm putting you in a managerial role. And if you don't live up to it, everyone's going to hate you and say you didn't deserve this. And that's basically what God is doing with us. He is wanting us to be co-creators in this world. That is why time doesn't start being calculated until God blew a soul into Adam. There have been, according to the way we calculate time, billions of years that existed before then. That doesn't matter to God. It was when he blew the soul into Adam, connected him to the spiritual realm, and said, now, let's finish creating this world together over the next 6,000 years. That's why we start tracking time then. So this also means that the future of mankind, as depicted by all the sci-fi writers, like Star Trek and Star Wars, that the only thing that changes with mankind is more advancement in with technology is not true. That's not what God has laid out for us. Something, if you really just contemplate that, it's incredible to consider what he is trying to give us. And that's why I like to sit back and look at these concepts before I study Torah to understand what it is that he's actually it makes me feel such a level of appreciation for what he's actually trying to do for us that it makes me want to strive harder to please him. And that's why I think stopping every now and then and, and contemplating these ideas is good. So with that foundation, I want to get into the, the question at hand, why doesn't God do a national revelation every generation and just make his point? So the 6,000 years is broken into 2,000 years of desolation, 2,000 years of Torah, and 2,000 years of Mashiach. And we'll, we'll sort of go through each of those segments in time and what happened. So uh, initially, everything started with the revelation. Adam knew everything, didn't stop him from sinning. Did revelation hold for him and his descendants? No. You had Cain kill Abel. And then you had, as time went on to Noah, everyone had descended back to being upright standing animal with greater intellect except for Noah. Right there, we see revelation from above. Did it help? No. But Noah, what made him unique was that he was stay true to God's will. And sometimes what God has to do is say, this is a choice branch. You know, at a spiritual level, all our souls are like branches on a tree before connecting to this world. And like the, the generations are like branches too of a tree. And sometimes he has to do some pruning. He wanted that one choice branch from Noah. Then that led led all the way to the times of Abraham. And in times of Abraham, again, God was very concealed. So what happened is you had times of Adam, total revelation to this gradual decline of revelation, the times of Abraham when there was total concealment of God. Everyone was into idolatry. Everyone had declined once again. But what Abraham did differently, what he did was he initiated it. It wasn't a revelation from above. He spent the first 80 years of his life through analytical deduction, determining that there is one God. 
and understanding that his job was to perfect his character traits, acknowledge God and see God throughout all of existence. And it wasn't till the age of 80 where Abraham received prophecy. And that also is the time of the second 2000 years of Torah. Key point is Adam received revelation. It didn't hold. Here we see something different. Abraham initiates it himself in total concealment. But we know what takes place. We know the story that leads to the children of Israel, Mount Sinai, and the Jewish people. That is what was important to God because he initiated that on his own. Within concealment, Abraham, after toiling, initiated, began the process of initiating on himself revelation. And that led, of course, to all the events that unfolded in the Exodus to Mount Sinai. Now, think about everything that, that the Jewish people witnessed, total revelation. They saw the ten plagues where God demonstrated completely that he controls all of nature. The idea that there's no God and, and nature controls everything, he dismantled that. Get, made it an experience that they could see with their eyes, hear, that they could totally experience with their bodily senses. And they go through the Red Sea, and unlike the way the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston described it, if you read the Midrash, it wasn't the water split up. It was these 12 tunnels each of the 12 tribes went through where they could see each other. When they touched the water, it would pour water out so they could drink. It was total experience to where no one can deny God exists. He is in control of everything. No one could, no one could say it was a low tide. He wanted to make it remarkably clear to this people. He exists. He controls everything. Then we get to Mount Sinai. Before the revelation, everyone that was maimed, they had a missing an arm or hurt body part. Everyone was healed. If they were sick, they were healed. If they were blind, they could see. If they were deaf, they could not hear. He restored everyone's body, brought them to, to, uh, at Mount Sinai. And then he made sure that everyone totally heard those first two commandments. And they, they say in the Midrash that they heard sights. They saw sounds and it, it was experience that he wanted them to not be able to deny that this is me, the creator, the infinite one, and so I'm giving you these instructions for how to live and fulfill your destiny. So they couldn't deny it. And it's it, those first two, two commandments are all of Torah, not the execution of it, but it's all of Torah, positive commandment and the negative commandment. And the people died each time. They were not, they had not structured themselves into vessels to receive that type of prophecy. That's why he had just to hoist it on them. But he needed them to hear the first two. And then Moses went up and received the rest of Torah. So unlike, again, the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, it wasn't that people stood around the mountain and then Moses came up, went up to, to the mountaintop and came back and said, guess what I heard? There's a reason I think why God chose us it made us a stiff-necked people because we're the only people if Moses came down and did that, we would say, prove it. Every other religion was initiated by a lone person out by themselves, had a revelation, an angel, God, and then came back and said, guess what I heard? And everyone said, what? And a religion was born. With us, if Moses came down, we would have said, like, prove it. Especially when you're about to tell us all these things that you're telling us that we're going to do. So we had this revelation, and then we go into the wilderness and think about this experience. Now we're in the wilderness, but we have the clouds covering our heads, protecting us from the sun. 
protecting us from any animals or anything like that. We receive manna straight from the, the heavens that fell right in front of us. The clothes grew as they grew. Because every man, they didn't have to go to the bathroom. I mean, basically every bodily need was taken care of. And then all they spent their days doing was Moses sitting in the tent of meeting. They would see God's presence, the clouds rest on the tent. He would have prophecy and he would teach the Torah. Not the written Torah hadn't come into being, but the oral Torah, the laws on how to live. That was their life. Initially, God wanted them to go into Israel, but they didn't want to go. Because why would you want to leave that type of situation? That is ideal. That's one of the reasons they, they did not want to go out into the land. But what God was telling them is that, no, this is temporary. I just want to give you a taste of how this world can look. But your choice. I think God knew that it's not going to be permanent right now. But then when they didn't want to go into Israel, he had to delay that for 40 years because he needed every adult at that time to pass on. He needed to prune the tree again because he wanted only the people that grew up in that experience who weren't part of people that were crying and didn't want to go into Israel to not be part of that branch that he needed to plant in Israel. And then you start to look at the, the concealment starts to happen again. We go from having manna drop from the sky, all our needs met. Now we go into Israel and we have to start planting, farming, raising livestock. And so he says in the Shema, that I'll provide rain for your lands, proper times, the early rains and the late rains. They may gather in your grain, your wine, your oil. I'll provide grass and your field for your cattle and you will eat and you'll be satisfied. Meaning I'm still going to be providing all your nourishment, but now I need you to earn it. Earn this revelation. Make it your own. Because right now, I just took away your free will. I gave you a freebie just so you could sort of experience what this can be like. Now, I'm going to conceal myself behind nature. I'm still going to provide for you. But what happened? Did that hold? No, because the Jewish people became very arrogant and said, this wealth is mine. I created it. And even, But even then, as he became more and more concealed, we had the temple with the open miracles through that. We had prophecy. So it was a lot more revelation than we have now, but did it hold? No, because Moses even warned everyone. When you read Deuteronomy, it's, it's it basically tells us this is how history is going to play out. You're going to be exiled out into the world unless you do these things right. And even with that warning, with even all that over time, as the concealment comes in layer after layer, they we still did it. Here's what happens next. So the end of that 2000 years, of Torah was 242 common error. So what starts happening as we get closer to that is they start to prepare. So first in 70 common error, Rabbi Jew the Prince takes the oral Torah and redacts it in the Mishnah Torah, starting to make the preparation because he knows that they know we're going to be moving out into exile. So he has to get that oral Torah that he knows is not going to be taught from generation to generation. And he has to write out. And then comes the year 200 common error. So now we're 42 years away from the closing of the 2,000 years of Torah. And the men of the great assembly knew they had to, to make preparations for us. So for one, they sealed the scriptures. They made our Tanakh and said, basically, here's here's the text they'll need to, to help them out over these next 2,000 years. They instituted prayers. Now, we had the Shema. We didn't have structured prayers. Like, we didn't have a sitter with all these different prayers in there. They didn't need them. They, they knew how to pray. And, and let me explain what I mean by they knew how to pray. When you read, like, the Shema Esrei, you look at how all those prayers are structured. For one, they're for all of Israel. It's for faithfulness to resurrect the dead, for wisdom, for wanting our repentance, for your forgiveness, for the health of all of Israel, 
for the blessings, financial blessings of all of Israel, for the the coming of Mashiach, for returning to Israel, for restoring the temple. That is how they structure their prayers. And it's interesting, too, that they close every prayer by saying, and thank you for doing this. This shows how powerful our speech is that we're just not even aware of. I, I used to, every time I get in my car, say, dear God, please get me safely to my destination. And I was thinking about how they structure the prayers. Now I say, thank you, God, for getting me safely to my destination. Because that's how they, that's the power of our speech that we don't understand that they understood. So why do they think that we needed formal prayers? More than likely, because they knew that if they didn't provide us some structure around our prayers, our prayers would probably look like, oh, dear God. Please let this be the winning lottery ticket. Oh, and just let me lose 20 pounds without giving up the chocolate cake and ice cream and chips. And let the Texans win the Super Bowl, please, God. That's probably where we would sort of get to. So they sort of know, like, we got to teach these people how to structure everything for the people at large and what's really important. Next thing they did was they coordinated the Jewish calendar, right? They didn't have time to have someone be a witness to the new moon. So they structured that out. They laid out processes for education. Again, creating everything for the future generations. And then we enter the 2,000 years of Mashiach. And this tells us something very important too. 2,000 years of Mashiach, we're about to enter the 2,000 years of the most concealment we've ever seen. Wouldn't it be 2,000 years of concealment? But yet it's being described as this is the 2,000 years of when we're going to have go into the Messianic era. And then what happens? We just move into this total concealment more than ever before. And I'll explain why, how he structured it to provide more concealment anytime throughout the world history because of this. Well, for one, in the timeline, the 500-year common errors were in the Talmud, which is the Mishnah with all the commentary around the law. The Zohar, in one of its prophecies, when it's analyzing the text of Noah, says the following. It says that just as the great flood in the times of Noah occurred in the 600th year of Noah's life, so too would a great flood occur in the 600th year of the 6th millennia on the Jewish calendar, which corresponds to the year 1840 of the Common Era. A second flood. We didn't have a flood, and here's why. Not the type you're thinking about. The second flood will not be one of torrential rains and geysers, but one of knowledge. Specifically, there will be two great bursts of knowledge. The first will be a flood of knowledge from above. In 1840, this is about when the, the Hasidic movement started taking these Kabbalistic concepts and bringing them to a way that people could understand them. You had more of a, a heightened uh, growth in Kabbalistic teachings and thought. So that would be the first flood of knowledge from above, while the second flood would be a flood of knowledge from below, scientific advancement, which, of course, 1840 equals Age of Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution. All those things started to transpire there. There's two things. When, with this flood of knowledge from below, scientific advancement, that could be either used by us to reveal God or conceal God. All right, because here's what I mean by that. When mankind discovers something, a scientific advancement, he can either say, look what I created, or he can say, look what I discovered that God created. Because you think about what is the source of technological advances? Well, God's orchestrating every event. God gives us those brilliant ideas, allowing us to discover how his world operates so we could discover the scientific advancements, technology, everything in the realm of science. He is orchestrating all that from above and now seeing what we do with it. And what has happened with that? Well, most people have said there is no God. Look how great and fantastic we are. You want to see a room full of arrogant people and arrogance equals atheism. Those are the same ideas. Go to Silicon Valley. So a lot of this is, is what he did was allow us to discover how his world operates, orchestrate events so we would have things you know, like the iPhone and all this technology, and then see what we do with it. 
And, and we can say either we use that to conceal God and say we are masters. We're gods. We're worshiping our own ego. There's a, uh, a joke you may have heard. What's the difference between God and a heart surgeon? God knows he's not a heart surgeon. That gives us one opportunity. The other opportunity to reveal God is, well, when I first started studying Torah 10 years ago, I was just sitting in my office and I was at the Aish website, the Chabad website. You know, you think now that Rabbi Wolby's podcasts all over the world, uh, you look at all the torch videos and all these things are just sending Torah throughout the, the internet all around the globe. It's having a, just a tremendous impact on people. So that using technology is revealing God. Here's another interesting, I don't know if this is true, but I like the idea. The reason for the star of David, the star of David's two triangles, one pointing up, one pointing down. And that's representing this idea of the knowledge from below, knowledge of the scientific, the way the, the world works, and the knowledge from above in the heavenly realm, syncing with each other, connecting. So again, I don't know whether that was the original reason that that symbol came into being, but I like it. I think it's very reflective of what it is that we're trying to accomplish. If you look at the history of mankind, that these revelations from above, there's no permanence to it because we continue to move into this, this, this concealment. You know, the, the peak of spiritual experience and knowing without a doubt that God was true was Mount Sinai, but it just dwindled down since then because he, it was, it came from above. It wasn't earned. That experience of living in the desert and having to fulfill all our needs, food dropping from the sky, all those things, it was God hoisting it upon us. We didn't earn it. So I want to to get a little more into how do we have a Mount Sinai experience. Here's another reason why revelation from above does not hold and have permanence. I posed this question to my daughter back when she was like seven, and I want you to consider it. Let's say tomorrow morning we wake up, we go outside and we see this strange light in the sky. Not the sun, it's not the moon, just this strange light we've never seen before. And through this light, it's like a portal and all these heavenly angels come pouring through. And they're all swarming around. Would that make God more real to you? I posed that question to my daughter when she was seven and her response to me was, what difference would that make? We already know God's real because she was only seven years old. She didn't have time to be uh, brainwashed, you know, and that's really the right answer. I mean, think about another scenario. We wake up tomorrow morning. We have an apple for breakfast. We take the seed. We take it out back into our backyard. We plant it in the ground, knowing the seed's going to disintegrate. And by next spring, there's a sprout coming from the ground. And we spend the next six years watching that sprout grow up into a tree and produce apples. That's pretty miraculous. Or... After a, within, you know, eight or nine months of uh, marital intimacy, we're in a hospital holding a baby. That's incredible. And that's how, that's how Abraham discerned on his own. I mean, they teach you like in, when you're in Sunday school, when you're a kid, that all of a sudden Abraham's just walking around and then God says out of the sky, Hey, it's me, God. It's not all what happened. He did it through logical deduction to the point that he perfected himself, perfected that his, his soul to where he had clarity and he was able to communicate directly with God through those levels of soul. So he, he, he earned it. So the, the, the problem we all have is that even though these miracles are all around us, God hardwired us to take things for granted in order to, to give us free will. 
I'll tell you where what shifted everything for me was I always had this uh, habit of waking up in the morning and reading. I would try to read things. I wanted to start, start reading things that were not economics or constitutional law or those type of things. But I wanted to stretch myself to subjects that I was not familiar with. So I started reading physics, which was way outside of my mental capacity, but I would struggle with it. You give me something to really, where you'd read a paragraph and you'd have to just totally struggle with these concepts. There, I was reading one on quantum mechanics and they were talking about their, the process they went through for discovering the quark, which is a subatomic particle of protons and neutrons. They were discussing, and because my view then was anybody who believes in anything they can't see, hear, or touch are just experiencing some sort of schizophrenia. Why would someone believe something they can't detect with their physical senses? And this is where the physicist led me to Torah. This is where I first read that sort of unraveled all that. As they were describing the process for discovering the quark, they said, look, you know, they acknowledge. The, they, they talk about how the physical senses are limited. Things at certain levels in the subatomic world, it, they didn't discover that because they saw it with a microscope. What they described is they, they have a process of creating a logical proof and then using other logical proofs and seeing if it, they hold. And he described this process they go through where eventually they created more logical proofs for the existence of the quark that they never detected with their senses than there was logical proofs for gravity. That blew me away. That right there, I had to stop and say, whoa. Right now, I'm hearing these guys, because I consider physicists to be the smartest guys in the world. They're just made a good argument against everything I've ever said. That just because you can't detect something with a census does not mean it doesn't exist. I was going to try to see if there was any logical proofs for Torah. I Googled it. I was thinking that I wasn't going to see anything except maybe some rabbi talking about how you just feel it. And what I found was an entire field of study by Torah scholars. I just became obsessed. And all I did was I would, I spent six months reading these every morning. That's all I would do is it was just read logical proofs. There's two good books that were written on this. And the person who wrote, I can't remember his name, but he is out. When I looked at, he was a student of Rabbi Shlomo Wolby, Rabbi Yelkov's grandfather. Permission to believe and permission to receive. One's on logical proofs for God, one's for logical proofs for Torah. About that big. I spent six months just studying this. Found it absolutely fascinating. One logical proof after another logical proof after another logical proof begins to mount and grow. That to me was my Mount Sinai experience. Eventually have to do something. And that's when I got to the, the changing point. And I, that's why everyone got, what happened to Dan? Because in six months, I went from an atheist to where I was on this pursuit of becoming an Orthodox Jew. I wanted to discuss a couple of things about this idea of concealment and revelation on an individual level. Even though it's happened over this, these cycles over mankind, this happens for us too, for a reason. I think this is really what I was trying to get to is that it is in the moments of concealment that is where we can earn the revelation. That's where we, that's really where we, because that's where we have true free will. That's where we initiate things. So like the moon, the moon is set up to wax and wane to remind us of God's going to be concealing himself and revealing himself. And what we see in our personal lives is right. We have these moments of inspiration and we just feel this connection. You know, I just times when my Torah study, I'm just getting it. I'm motivated in the morning. My prayers are, are focused. 
I'm in staying in this amazing, joyful state. Nothing's stressing me out. Work comes in. I'm solving those problems. Like we have those states where we're just in the flow. And then I always move over in that state where I just, the alarm clock goes off and I don't want to get out of bed. And then I don't feel connected and I just feel off. Now he moves away. What do we do with it? That's where the opportunity is, is to then take the initiation to do something with it. One of the ideas Rabbi Nachman talks about is whatever you know you should be doing that you just don't feel like doing is precisely what you should be doing. Because it's that challenge that God created to make it your own, to do like Abraham did, initiate it. That's That brings permanence. There's no free will in that. We also know that the, when we don't want to do these things, the, the Yetzirah only exists in our thoughts. So the way I think of the Yetzirah, too, is a great parable that was uh, given that you have a king, he has a prince, he wants to groom, see if that prince is going to be ready to take over the kingdom one day or at least rule it with him. So he hires a harlot and he says, I want you to try and seduce my son. And so she's out there constantly trying to seduce him, trying to get him to sin, but the son does not give in, does not do it. And so after the whole period of testing, the father brings the son into his chamber and then brings the harlot and said, I hired her. You did well. You've earned, you've earned to rule this kingdom now. Now, was the harlot doing anything wrong? No, she was serving the king. That is our Yetzirah. He's serving the king. God wanted us to have free will. That's the job of the Yetzirah. It's a free will decision. So here's some things I learned, which are just a couple months ago. It seems so simple. You may say, Dan, that's so obvious, but to me, it was so profound. It's only Musar I'm focusing on right now. So as I was saying, the Yetzirah only exists in our thoughts. Everything that happens out here is being orchestrated by God. And think of it like the Yetzirah is like a counselor and we're the king of our kingdom. Our, our soul inside of our body, this is our kingdom. The Yetzirah is like a counselor offering advice. So one thing this uh, person said, which is uh, so true, is like anytime, it's so easy, anytime the thought is negative about yourself, another person, or a situation, if the thought is negative, that is your Yetzirah saying, offering advice, and you just acknowledge it as such. Maybe there's something about business I need to attend to. But if I'm studying Torah, I always keep a yellow pad of paper there. It's like, duly noted. Thank you so much. I'll address that later. That's all it is. It's so easy. If it's a negative thought about you, someone else, or a situation, it is your Yetzirah in a story. Act like a king. Listen to your advisor that God gave you and say, all right, thank you very much. I'll address that later. So there's another uh, something sort of cool that happened to me. Uh, I knew I was supposed I, 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 I need to be studying on Shabbat, Mishnah Torah and the Shekona Ruk. And they both sort of confluenced on the subject of Aruvs, which is not a real stimulating topic because it's all measurements to do in situations I'm not going to run into. It's a whole but I knew I needed to study it, and I just was not feeling like doing it all. I hadn't done it in weeks because I've been traveling a lot. I was like, I'm just not going to do it. So I opened up this book called The Nefesh Lachaim by Rabbi Abraham Yokoff Finkel, and which is a great book. And I was like, I'm just going to read this. Sorry, I'm not going to do it. It's not in the mood. The second paragraph down, this is what I read. There are many sincerely devout people who occupy themselves almost exclusively with the study of books on piety and religious devotion. Rather than making the study of Torah their main concern, they shy away from Torah and halakhic texts 
May God forgive them. They mean well, but this is not the way towards attaining the light of the Torah. I was like, okay. <laughs> okay. Close that. But here's the thing. As soon as you, I made the effort and I started studying it, it was just like, I couldn't put it down. It was just delicious. And one of the things Rabbi Nachman talks about is once we just make the, the will, the initiation, he does everything from there. And Rabbi Nachman said that you could also pray for the will. It worked. Tor, any fulfilling mitzvah, pray for the desire. We can pray for the desire and it's still ours. So he's not even putting that much weight on us. He's, you know, he'll, he's going to carry us. The last thing I'm going to use to serve a logical proof is I think if everyone looks at their life, they can see God's providence in their life. Again, the whole first line of the Shema, the reason it's so important is because it's saying that Everything that's happened, good or bad, is all being directed by God and all for the best. It's like when something bad happens, you're saying this too is for the good. Got to find the beauty in everything. Everything is learning experience. So I think it's important. If all you go back and look at, at your life, you'll find God's providence in there. So I think back to my dad constantly talked to me over and over again about, because he knew I was into working out at a young age not really into studying. And he kept saying, he, he harnessed one habit to form another habit. He said, the mus- the brain is like a muscle. Strain it, it will get stronger. And that led to me waking up every morning and studying from economics. And I said, constitutional law, the physics, and that just set the pay away for me to wake up every morning and study Torah. And then he, the fact that he always said, why would you ask me why? That led me to become a very Torah observant Jew. Because I just know God asked me to do something, I'm going to do it. I look at, when I decided it was time to get married, merely by the fact that I was aging out of being single, I think I, I met a girl at a bar who was like 24, and I was like 29, and we were hitting off. So I like girls under 25. So they didn't want to get serious. And I thought this is going great. She was uh, working on her master's degree. She goes, "I can't. I got to introduce you to my professor. You guys would hit it all perfectly. She's uh, she's your age." And I went home just. I'm turning to the old creepy guy at the bar. Time to get married. So I, I met Shauna when I wanted a girl. Someone that was, you know, had my requirements. Uh, all I want, nice, very intelligent. I could have deep conversation with basically the opposite of what I looked for when I was dating. And third, they have to be an atheist. And I don't want a Jew who says they're an atheist because I know that will change when they have kids. So I met Shauna, non-Jew, not religious, perfect. Everything was a lie. We got married. Shortly after we got married, she starts talking about religion. I was like, I, I don't want to talk about religion. Next thing I know, she signs up for a basic Judaism class in Manuel. Then she tells me that she's going through a conversion process. The next thing I know, I'm being, I'm married to a Jew. And I was like, what just happened here? And then everything sort of evolved over time to where now, here we are. We're about to move into the community. We're putting our house on the market next week. Shauna wants to have an Orthodox conversion with Elsie. And we're going to be in community. And it's beautiful. It's amazing. I had this dream a couple of weeks ago. It was last Shabbos. One of the things I love doing is going to sleep early on Shabbos, wake up in the middle of the night and study. It's, I'm telling you, if you're ever stuck on some texts, wake up in the middle of the night in Shabbos and study. It'll be great. I had this incredible dream where I was, it was back in 1991. I was back at Lehman Brothers, the top of the Texas Commerce Tower, Chase Tower. I was there with the guys I was working for and they left the office. We were, I had this office about the half size of this room. I was outside the big open area, working with these two top producers, back my mindset of being, you know, 20, 21 years old, about to graduate college, 
And they left the room, and then I just remembered everything. I remembered everything the market was going to do. And I was sitting there just like, oh, my God, this is going to be awesome. I know what, how to play the interest rates and the market and how to leverage everything. I'm, I was just calculating, we'll be a trillionaire by the time I'm 40. I looked out the window at the, the brokers out there, just like I remember them. This is, this is great. I'll be so wealthy. And then I thought about Torah. And I was like, oh yeah, I need to, I'm going to go to the, this would be great because I'll be able to start my own firm after two years, trade my own account and study Torah all day. I'll be the, I'll be a Torah scholar by the time I'm 40 and a trillionaire, the world's first trillionaire. I know it. I could, I, I mapped out like every trade in my head. Then I all of a sudden I remember it's like, oh, I need to meet Shauna, Shauna and Elsie. I got to meet Shauna. Where's Shauna? She's in Washington right now. And she comes down here to go to Rice and this year. I started mapping out how I could enter. Oh, she goes work for the Eastern Grand Opera. I'll be able to donate a million dollars. And then I'll go to one of the fundraising parties and I'll meet her there. But I started mapping out this whole thing, playing through this in my head. And I realized, because what I realized when I was still dreaming is like, oh, but if I'm in the observant community, knowing what I do now, I can't ask out a non-Jew. So what do I do? And then I woke up and I was playing through every situation in my head, trying to figure out how it all maps out. And I couldn't figure out. There was no way for it to map out any other way than the way it did. And when I was sitting there in, in bed with Sean on Shabbos, my daughter upstairs asleep, I thought to myself, would you trade a trillion dollars to not be here in this moment right now? No way. And more importantly, would you give up all the darkness, concealment, the heartache, the pain, the struggles to not be here right now with them? No way. I'll take all those periods of concealment, pain, darkness, all that. All of it was worth it. And when we look back at our lives, we see how everything was being orchestrated. So I got up, and then I read the Parsha, Parsha Vayeshev, and he settled. Story of Yokov or Jacob, he comes after all his struggles with Esau and Laban, and then Rebecca dies, and now he's in Israel, and he's ready to settle. He's earned it. So what happens next? He finds out his son Joseph dies. And now he's in the worst place he's ever been in, and he's so despondent that he no longer can have privacy. So he is in the most heavily laden area of concealment his entire life. Meanwhile, Joseph is going into slavery. He has to deal with Potiphar's wife trying to seduce him day and night. And when he overcomes that challenge, what's his reward? 12 years in prison. So he's in this deep layer of concealment. And then last week's Parsha, Miketz, at the end of, is Joseph is freed from prison and just overnight made viceroy. And then that leads, uh, which means at the end of, at the end, if the UAXR saw, saw that, we just looked at the titles and the way this plays out, at the end of concealment. It's beginning to end. And then, by Yigash, and he drew near, and that's when Joseph, Jacob, and his brothers reunite. And then uh, next week's Vayeche, and he lived, and then Jacob lives the best 17 years of his life. They're all reunited, and they see how everything played out. So when, in that deepest, darkest area of concealment, is when that created the situation for him to live. When we talk about this era of Mashiach, we call it the 2,000 years of Mashiach, but how does it begin? Deep concealment, growing more and more and more, all the way to the very end. It is that permanence where we earn it that comes in that area of concealment. That is what I, I wanted to convey. At least maybe give you some ideas to consider. It is in the concealment where the opportunities reside. And where God is trying to give us the opportunity, things permanent and earn that role we're going to play as, as co-creator of this world.
If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.